bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. This is the Tuesday, November 9th, 2021 podcast. In today's podcast, we're going to have a general discussion about Opportunity Zones. Today's podcast is a perfect place to start for anyone who's considering starting or investing in a qualified opportunity fund, and for anyone considering investing in a qualified opportunity zone business. Also, if you are a qualified opportunity zone business seeking investment from opportunity funds, this podcast is for you. Now, the Opportunity Zones Incentive isn't new. It was enacted in December 2017. The OZ Incentive was created as part of the partisan Republican tax bill in December 2017. That said, Investing in Opportunity Zones wasn't actually possible until Treasury designated Qualified Opportunity Zones in June 2018 and announced rules as to how funds could self-certify. Even then, there was a limited number of investable structures that you could use until regulatory guidance was released. And the IRS didn't issue final regulations until December 2019. And then the pandemic caused a lot of disruption. All of that said, investment in Opportunity Zones has been more robust than initially projected. Billions of dollars have been invested in Opportunity Funds. That means billions of dollars are being invested in low-income communities in distressed areas. Now, today's podcast is going to cover what it takes to get started with Opportunity Zones financing. Joining me on today's podcast is my partner, John Shreddy. John is an expert in Opportunity Zones, serving many of Novogratz's Opportunity Zones clients. He's also the Opportunity Zones technical editor for the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits, and leads the Novogratic Opportunity Zones Working Group. I do encourage you to consider membership in that group. This is this introduction, a long way of saying that John is gonna be able to share a very well-rounded, well-informed perspective of Opportunity Zones. Now, John and I are gonna discuss first Opportunity Zones basics, a quick overview. We'll discuss how to start a qualified opportunity fund, and we'll touch on some key compliance risks. And at the end of the podcast, John and I will also have an off-mic section where listeners can get some non-tax-related advice and words of wisdom from our podcast guests. We have many exciting topics to cover, so if you're ready, let's get started. John, thank you for joining us again on Tax Credit Tuesday. Thank you, Mike. Happy to be back. Super. As I mentioned in my intro, I wanted to start with a basic overview of Opportunity Zones for listeners who might not be familiar with the incentive. So if you could describe at a very high level how the Opportunity Zone Incentive brings investment to distressed communities. Absolutely. So the concept is that there's trillions of dollars in unrealized capital gains out there in the marketplace. And so the policy is that to take this untapped resource and direct it towards economic development. So if an investor would realize a gain, then they can invest that gain. They don't have to invest all the proceeds they receive from selling a capital asset has to be capital gain. If they invest the gain, it's only the gain in a qualified opportunity fund. And then that fund in turn invests in qualified assets. Now they can do that directly or they can do it indirectly. So directly they would buy the qualified asset and use it in a business, lease it to a business, or indirectly they can invest in a qualified opportunity zone business. And by doing this, they qualify for certain federal and more often than not state capital gain reductions. So that's a general summary of the program. 
So the fund itself is formed and then it self-certifies, raises capital from investors, and then either buys qualifying property itself or invests in qualified businesses. If you could maybe share what some of those types of qualified businesses are, because as as and I know, most opportunity funds don't hold assets directly operating or qualified residents on business property. Most of them invest through qualified residents on businesses. So maybe you could describe what some of those businesses tend to be. You're correct, Mike. Most of the structures are indirect investment structures where a qualified opportunity fund invests in a lower tier entity that contains a business. That entity itself has to be a partnership or a corporation. In any trader business that substantially operates in an opportunity zone qualifies. Now there are some exceptions commonly referred to as the sin businesses. And those are things like golf courses, country clubs, massage parlors, and even entities that sell alcohol off premise. You could actually invest in alcohol or an entity that would sell alcohol on premise, but any sort of entity that sells alcohol off premise is considered a sin business. And these so are restaurants are okay and restaurants that sell liquor are okay, that's but correct. a liquor store is not. Correct. Now the statute is such that the businesses really need to be new businesses or expanding businesses. Doesn't work well with existing businesses that are expecting to remain status quo. You, you need to make a substantial investment in these qualified assets that we talked about earlier. So the statute accomplishes through the various asset testing, which I imagine we'll get to a little bit later in the podcast. Yeah, and I would just note that as you went for our listeners benefit, John has led an effort within the Opportunities Working Group to create a little bit more expansive rules, so more existing businesses and opportunity zones uh, could qualify and be eligible for uh, opportunity fund equity financing. But we are still waiting to hear back from Treasury on some of those uh, recommendations. Indeed. So like many of our Tax Red Tuesday listeners, your clients are often experienced in working with other community development tax incentives such as the low-income housing tax credit, new market tax credits, store tax credits, and the like. So John, when you're explaining opportunity zones to those clients, how do you subscribe how they're different, how opportunity zones are different than these other tax incentives? First off, I always say it's just another tool in the toolbox for community development financing. It's not exclusive, meaning if you take advantage of opportunity zones, it doesn't mean you can't also avail yourself to the, the various credit programs. Uh, it needs to be equity and equity, you know, tends to be the hardest dollars to attract in a project or in a business. But the opportunity zone incentive itself is a shallower subsidy when compared to low-income housing tax credits or the new market tax credit. Now, low-income housing, it could be as much as or more than 50% of your capital stack. And new market tax credits can be up to 20% of your capital stack, the subsidy itself. Opportunity zones are a little hard to quantify. We like to say that on an after-tax basis, it tends to be additive to your yield 300 to 500 basis points. So it's really compensation for higher perceived risk in, in the investment or perhaps the illiquidity because you're really required to hold the investment for 10 years in order to get the full benefit out of the investment. It's a what I would consider a truly but-for capital in that this incentive is really designed to help folks maybe invest in a, in a project before another project that might have the same 
facts and circumstances. It's that little bit that gets you over the three to five, 500 basis points on an after-tax investment is not nothing to sneeze at. No, it's definitely a significant enhancement. And then obviously the goal of that enhancement is to then get the, in the business able to A, raise equity, which maybe they couldn't raise the equity before, but that boost becomes more attractive as such that they can raise the equity. And then you know, once you get past that to where you can raise the equity, uh, the hope is that you would also end up raising more equity for the same amount uh, of yield because of that after-tax benefit. But as you noted, it is a shallower subsidy. And many will comment on how the Opportunity Zones incentive can't make a uneconomic investment economic, but it can make an investment that's marginally economic investable because it'll raise the economics over investor hurdle rates. So maybe you could describe some of the short-term and long-term benefits of participating in Opportunity Zones incentive, which are the reasons why what I just said is generally accurate. Sure, Mike. So really, there's three benefits. When you realize the capital gain invested in the qualified opportunity fund, you, you receive tax deferral. And that tax deferral is up until 2026. So there's no set term to deferral. The later we get in the program, the less your term of deferral. In December 31st, 2026, you, need, you have to realize whatever you defer. And you can make investments for capital gains realized all the way up to that date. But um, again, the, the, the deferral period is you know, getting shorter every year. There's also partial exclusion on that deferral. And so if you hold your investment for, for five years, you get a 10% exclusion, meaning that you're only gonna pay 90%, uh, or you only have to realize 90% of the original capital gains invested in 2026. And if you haven't hold it for seven years, then you get an additional 5%. So that's a, up to 15% exclusion on that original deferral. Now, because as I said, the deferral period ends for everyone, 2026, the only partial exclusion benefit left is the 10% exclusion. And that'll be for investments made by the end of this year. So it's a very important year in the program. We expect that we'll have an acceleration of investment towards the end of this year. So folks can take advantage of that 10%. And then the third benefit is the full exclusion on any future gains realized on the opportunity zone investment. So if you hold it for 10 years, the investment, then you any sort of realization event after that 10-year period, any gains that you realize are excluded from capital gain. And that's why it's really important that the, the investment is held for 10 years. And we talked about earlier that some of these other investments like loan from market tax credits and new market tax credits. The project itself, the economics of the project are not as meaningful to the return that investor uh, receives. New markets really being based on the investment in a fund. As long as the fund is in compliance, they're going to get the credits and loan from housing being the same of a project-based credit based upon the requirements, meeting the requirements of that program. In new market tax credits, there needs to be economics. Like Mike said, this sort of adds to uh, the return, but if you have no return, then you know, you're, you're at risk of losing um, all of your investment. So it's really important that the investment itself has appreciation in order to get the full benefit of this program, that third benefit that we talked about. I like to think of it as the, an investor in a long for the cash credit or historic or markets or a tax credit driven investment. They can be structured in ways 
that substantially all of their return are coming from the tax as opposed to the return of their equity. Whereas with opportunity zones, as you noted, the first two benefits, the partial gain exclusion, and only the, and there was originally a potential of 15%. Now there's only 10% left because of the way the rule works. So you have this 10% gain exclusion and you have the deferral of the gain into 2026. So those two pieces are relatively minor when you think about the full amount being invested. And as you noted, the 10-year hold, excluding gain on the 10-year hold, is uh, substantial if the asset appreciates. And early on, that was always the driver. And as we get closer to 2026, that just becomes more the driver. But we're definitely seeing a large number of developments that were having trouble raising equity. And then when Opportunity Zones came along, suddenly that extra boost, gain exclusion, when you put that into the model, suddenly that potential yields are getting the hurdle rates that were attracting investor interest. So let's actually turn to that area about attracting investor interest in terms of fundraising data. As you know, we release at Novogratic an Opportunity Zones Investment Report twice a year, and the next published report will include data for the second half of calendar year 2021. And as you also noted, we do expect a relatively robust year because this 10% step up or 10% gain exclusion, technically it's a basis step up, but it works as a gain exclusion. That expires within this year. So we do expect a robust fall in terms of capital raising. But we did share some data at a midpoint update in October, and we announced it at our Opportunity Zones conference that we held in Cleveland just a few weeks ago. What investment trend insights can you share with our listeners from that data? Now we're tracking 1,200 funds, Mike, and that continues to increase. I think it's a 6.6% increase from our last report in June 30th, 2021. 900 of those funds actually report fundraising data to us. The equity total surpassed $20 billion. So that's a big milestone for our survey and the marketplace in general. That's an increase of $2.8 billion in just three months from the gym. It's a 15.8% um, increase over the 30th over. We get this information through direct survey and public sources, and it doesn't include proprietary or private funds. So we expect that the total is three to four times what we actually survey and, and, <clears throat> and report the data on. As far as the investments themselves, residential and commercial real estate still dominate the investment class. And some interesting signs or encouraging signs is that commercial real estate, commercial only, investments in commercial only real estate are up 49% since June. So like I said, that's an encouraging sign that we're recovering from COVID. And yes. hospitality, which was flat for a long while through COVID, um, was up 102%. And that's $200 million invested in just three months in the funds that we track. So another encouraging sign. And we can use all the encouraging signs we can get coming out of this pandemic. So we're happy to see that. Yeah, I would also note that early on, a lot of the investment was in residential, which I think didn't come as a surprise to you and me. I think it was a surprise to many others because you always thought residential was the easiest to underwrite the quickest, particularly given the housing crisis that America is facing. And then we were thinking that in due course, you would get a lot more investment in commercial, hospitality, operating businesses and the like. And then of course the pandemic came. So it has been comforting and good to see that increase in hospitality and in commercial. And hopefully those increases will continue to be sustained. 
That being said, it's also very important that there is more residential housing built in uh, low-income communities for a whole variety of uh, reasons. And I will mention that John Lottieri with EIG uh, did write a piece in tax notes uh, a number of months ago where he does a great job of expressing and, and detailing how important residential housing can be uh, to distressed areas. But I won't get off on that tangent. So let me come back to sort of the purpose of this uh, podcast. And that has to do with helping instruct those that are looking to invest in or manage opportunity funds or seeking best from opportunity funds. Now let's talk more about qualified opportunity funds specifically. So how does a qualified opportunity fund compare to other investment vehicles that our listeners might be familiar with? Well, a qualified opportunity fund, it could be a multi-asset or a single asset purpose investment vehicle. Uh, based on our data, there, there tends to be a trend towards single asset funds. And I think that has to do with the complexity around timing and some of the asset tests. But there are a number of multi-asset funds and a number of our clients are multi-asset funds. The fund itself needs to be organized as a corporation or a partnership with a purpose of investing in qualified opportunity zones. So pretty simple. You set up a partnership or a corporation and you need to, you need in its organizing documents, you need to have that purpose of investing in opportunity zones. And the fund itself has to hold 90% of its assets in qualified property. And that's qualified opportunity zone property. And that's tested a couple times a year. We can get a little more detail on that later in the program, but you self-certify this fund. And you actually, most of the time, it's retroactive. You, file, you, you certify with your tax return. And so if you set up a fund in any calendar year, you would actually certify the fund when you file that tax return. And the form itself is called an 8996. And on that form, you pick the date of certification. And that's important because you need to make sure that you pick the date where you're a certified fund before you actually get investment. And we've seen, we've been the recipient of some returns that came to us after the fact. And lo and behold, the, the date was after their initial investments. And so we had to ask for a ruling around that, but you just gotta make sure that date that it's actually a fund before the investment. And that's really all it takes to be a qualified opportunity fund. The 90% test is where it gets a little complicated. And we'll talk a little bit about that later on in the program. Great. Thank you. When I think of the funds, you mentioned the funds that are make multiple investments versus single investments. I almost think of it more like a barbell where on one end, you have the real large funds that'll have multiple investments in qualified businesses. And as you noted, it might be just residential, it might be just commercial, just hospitality. It might be residential and commercial and the like. And the features of those are large dollars raised, diversification, a whole host of benefits to that aggregation effect. And then on the other end, you have the single asset. The other end of the barbell, you have the single asset where an investor doesn't get the benefits of diversification, but they do know specifically the property they're investing in and the rest. So there's definitely benefits to both structures and not quite as many in the middle where it's two or three properties, but there are some of those as well. So thank you for that overview of the funds themselves as compared to other types of investment vehicles. So if I'm a, a lot of uh, sponsors have mimicked that diversification by putting like investors in single asset funds across the spectrum. So you see a lot of that too in the marketplace. 
No, that's a very uh, that's a very good point. That's a very good point, particularly early on when it was unclear how well multiple investment funds would work. Funds would create a series of individual funds but have the same investor in multiple funds. And there's definitely some benefits to that. And you mentioned it mainly corporations and you have to be a corporation or a partnership. And I would guess I would say most of the investment vehicles for individuals and even corporations that are investing with third parties will be partnerships as opposed to corporations because of the corporate tax, with the exception of potentially having a qualified opportunity fund that's also a REIT. But we won't get involved in won't get into that here. <laughs> and then obviously, if you have a corporation and then as a self-directed qualified opportunity fund, then there's that self-directed fund would be a corporation as well. So let's talk about qualified opportunity fund managers. What what is a manager of a fund that is that isn't self-directed, has third-party uh, unrelated investors in it? What actually it also applies to self-directed funds. What do they need to know about opportunity zone incentive deadline? I think first and foremost, they need to inform their investors that they have 180 days to invest any gain that they would be realized. Now that there's some flexibility there, if an investor realizes a gain through a pass-through entity, they can actually have 180 days from when that pass-through entity's tax returns do. So that puts them clear into the latter part of the next year. Um, and there are various other rules that give taxpayers a little more time with respect to any sort of installment gains or any sort of 1099s that they might receive later. So there are some there is some flexibility, but the general rule is 180 days from the realization event to invest that gain. And sponsors needed to know that because they're out selling these investments to qualified opportunity fund investors and you know need to make sure that they can counsel them on what would qualify in their fund. Once the money uh, is contributed, the fund itself has up to six months before a testing date in order to invest that cash, either in an asset that is used in a business, or like we said earlier, most of these investments are indirect investments. So they're investing into a business that's a qualified opportunity business. So they don't get six months to invest the cash, they get up to six months where that cash is ignored for the 90%. So if you were to get an investment you know, in May of the year, then you really only have two months, um, May and June, to invest that money into you know, a qualified investment. But it is up to six. Once the money's uh, invested, let's say the next year, then the testing dates. So the first testing date in the first year is six months from the, the, the start of the fund or the, the origination of the fund. And then in latter years, the testing dates are June, the end of June, and the end of December. And then you take an average of their qualified assets over total assets, and that has to be 90%. Most qualified opportunity funds get more time to actually invest the money in assets by pushing this money down to a qualified opportunity zone business. And I think that's one of the features of which it's really compels folks to use the indirect structure in that once you push the cash down to the business, generally you have 31 months to use that cash. Let's say you were making an investment in uh, a real estate partnership and, and you were building a new building. And so you don't have to um, use all that cash the day that the uh, money hits the qualified business. You generally have 31 months to use that cash. If you write what's called a working capital plan, and that's referred to as the working capital safe harbor. You can get 31 months to use that cash. And that can be, if you happen to get another receipt of cash in that business, they could have 62 months to use 
all their working capital, but no more than 62 months. But we're talking five years, so it's a really flexible rule. And then there were even some sort of COVID extensions that gave folks extra time, an additional 24 months to use this money. So what you normally see is qualified opportunity funds pushing down that cash um, as long as they have an investment available to put in. But the general rule is you can't keep it in the fund for longer than up to six months before a testing date. I would so just note that, that on, the, on the surface, that seems a little generous. Mm-hmm. But uh, in fact, when you think about running a business, if you're raising money from investors, you want to get that money generating a return as quickly as possible. So at some level, Opportunity Fund doesn't have a lot of incentive to be putting the money in a working capital reserve at a subsidiary business level and have it just sit there (laughs) because it's not generating return while it's sitting there. So they definitely want to put the money to work as fast as possible. But it is nice for the IRS to recognize that there's plenty of economic reasons to be getting the money out and being used as quick as possible. But there also can be issues that arise during the course of the development process that could delay it. So I thought it was a nice middle ground uh, for the IRS to give some liberty to deal with potential issues during the development process. Once you've raised the capital and invested in the business uh, as it is in process of becoming a operating business. So is there anything else you wanted to say with respect to uh, potential deadlines in terms of uh, fund managers? I think we already talked about, you know, this year being an important deadline and that you would want to make sure you collect your investments into the Qualified Opportunity Fund before the end of the year in order to take advantage of that 10% partial exclusion of the original bird gain. So that's an important thing to remember for this year. Great. Thank you for that. So if I'm listening to this podcast and I'm thinking I would like to start my own opportunity fund, either for my own capital gains that I'm going to go invest in an operating business or to raise money from other investors to invest in uh, an opportunity zone business, what are the next steps that you think I should take in order to form that fund? I think the main advice is to hire an expert early or experts early, um, both legal and accounting professionals that know their way around the incentive because the rules can be very challenging. On the surface, they seem pretty simple. And for certain events, certain investments where where the facts are plain vanilla, which I haven't seen many of those, but but I'm sure they're they're not as challenging, but the rules can be very challenging. There's a lot of timing concerns and there's a lot of concerns around the right assets, both the funding, the business businesses can earn. It's not easy. In some cases, it may even be impossible to restructure if you make a mistake. And that's an important thing. We've seen, we've had clients come to us after the fact and they've invested in a certain way or acquired assets in a certain way. And it's very difficult to stay within their business objectives and structure the fund to qualify for the incentive. And so it's, again, it's just very important to hire an expert or experts early. You really just need to get it right. I always say the who, what, when, and how of acquiring assets. Like you just, there's a lot of rules around who you can buy them from, how they have to be bought, when they have to be bought, and, and what assets you're actually buying. And so assets and generating revenue, because in, in the context of operating business, you know, you have to generate your revenue, at least the majority of your revenue, in a qualified 
qualified opportunity zone. And there are various safe harbors for that too. And they're somewhat complex. And so it's important to just that you're thinking about all these issues up front. There are a number of experts, including Novogratz, that can help with all of this stuff. And then I would say the second thing is pre-funding. You need to get it. Make sure you, you get it right. But in the spirit of entropy, <laughs> you've got to keep those experts close to, to you and check things along the way because the things can go awry. You're continually reporting the 90% test, which has a, which which is directly related to the 70% test. It's, and that's the asset test for the businesses. And so you need to make sure you keep those experts close to you, checking things along the way. That's great advice, John. It's definitely get an experienced accountant, get an experienced uh, tax attorney. Don't uh, let someone learn on your opportunity fund or your quality opportunity zone business. And I, I would maybe emphasize the moment you think you want to be making an investment in an opportunity zone, or you think you might want to be raising capital for your opportunity zone business, or you think you might want to form a fund, you should talk to uh, an experienced advisor right away. And I, I have one example of an issue that can arise if you're thinking, well, I don't need to talk to someone just quite yet. And that is, say you get a contract to you know, buy a piece of land in an opportunity zone, you're going to go make a real estate development and all the rest. You don't actually buy the land yet. You just have a evident a contract. And then you wait a year or two, and then you decide, okay, um, I'm ready to execute. And I have this contract in my own name or something. I'm going to go take it and, and try to make a capital contribution of that to buy land to an opportunity zone business or to a co-op opportunity fund who's going to contribute to a business and the like. That contract could have appreciated in value such that now that's an intangible asset that has certain rights to it. And you can end up running into some traps. Uh, for the uh, unwary here. So you definitely want to, in a situation like that, if you're thinking of buying land or think of getting a contract to buy land or make an investment in an Opportunity Zone business or form one, you definitely want to be talking to Opportunity Zone advisors. So speaking of being inexperienced with Opportunity Zones and navigating the rules, the opposite can be tricky. The Opportunity Zones regulations are quite lengthy uh, and they do encompass a number of different deal structures different types of businesses, types of tax issues that can be there. I like to think of opportunity zones, like I think of many other tax credits or tax incentives. And that is that the rules themselves are fairly straightforward and manageable if you understand them and are familiar with them and operate them regularly. It's kind of like driving your car where you understand the road signs and all the rest. But if you suddenly you're in a foreign country and you have to drive a car, some of those road signs might not be quite so easy to understand. You might not know what they mean. So the rules are straightforward to manage when you understand them. If you aren't active in an area, then there's many potential pitfalls and footfalls that, as you noted, you may not realize until after you've committed them. For some of these errors, as you know, John, we can go back and go to the IRS and try to get the IRS to allow late elections and things of that nature. But there are some pitfalls or footfalls that you can't go to the IRS and ask them to let you correct them. You may have actually severely damaged the amount of opportunities on financing that you can generate because of those pitfalls or footfalls, or you might have ended the ability for your investors in your opportunity fund to get the benefits of the step-ups, the deferral, and the 10-year hold benefit. So, so that's once again, John, why you and I are emphasizing the importance of experienced advisors early in the process. So John, I did want you to discuss some of the services that we do provide to clients to help them avoid compliance pitfalls or footfalls. Sure, Mike. So I think there's 
like sort of two main entry points in our client services around opportunity zones. First and foremost, we do a lot of transaction advisory work, pre-investment type consulting, where we look at the proposed structure, your new operating agreements, purchase and sale agreements, understand the ownership. Because related party rule under this program is uh, a 20% rule. So the general rule in most tax law for a related party is 50%. And in opportunity zones, it's only 20%. And so you can't buy assets from an entity that you would happen to own 20% of, or even expect to get 20% of the profits at some point, like a carry measure. So we do, we look at structure, we look at operating agreements, we look at purchase and sale agreements, we, we review the flow of funds, expected flow of funds and the financing plans. And more often than not, we prepare these projections for our clients. We look at their working capital safe harbor. You remember earlier, I talked about this working capital safe harbor plan. It's probably, uh, that's probably the tax rule that I've talked about more than anything else in the last four years. Mike. Yes. Just, we're trying to understand this and how it works. And it's, if you get it right, it's really important because you got this long term uh, to use the money, but it's easy to get wrong. And so we do look at the working capital safe harbor plan. We help folks prepare their safe harbor capital plan and help manage the cash flow around it. Because sometimes you're not going to spend the money in time. And so perhaps it makes sense to leave a little at the fund and then dribble it down when you can spend it within the time frame. And we look at all the rules on the front end and the projections just to see if this transaction is expected to meet all the requirements. And then we wrap a report around it. We call it an AUP report, agreed upon procedures report. And I think funds really like it. Sponsors like it because they know someone has their back looking at all the issues. But investors seem to like it as well in that they know that there's a third party out there that is an expert around all these rules that is opening up the hood and making sure that everything is uh, consistent with the requirements. We do this for funds, what I call a tandem fund qualified business, where the sponsor may control both sides of that. But we also do it a lot for sort of third-party qualified um, opportunity zone business investments, which I'm seeing more and more of, where the fund itself is not related to the business in any way. And they like to have us review the opportunity zone requirements around that business that they're expected uh, to invest in. Once the deal is closed, we do an historical review of the books and records before a testing date. And we like to get in there a few months before a testing date, so that if anything is wrong and we're able to make changes with cash flows or something of that nature before a testing date, that you can fix it. And so we, uh, we like to get in there a month or two before the testing date. And we're really just determining whether the business is expected to meet the 70% test that we talked about, because they have to meet that 70% test in order for the fund itself to meet the 90% test. It all works together. And so we check all of the requirements around that 70% test. We check the requirements around whether the operating revenue, if it is operating at that point, whether it's doing business in the zone. We look at all of the asset tests at the business level. And then we also roll it up into the fund level and make sure that they're going to meet their 90% test, um, whether funds were invested on time, whether there might not be too many non-qualified assets at that fund level. So like I said, we do this primarily before the testing date and sometimes twice a year for funds before that six month testing date and before that year end testing date. And again, that we wrap up and do an AUP report that funds like to have for their investors, but also like to have in the event that they ever were audited by the IRS, they would have something that just give them comfort and maybe even the agent comfort that 
somebody that's an expert around this looked at that, looked at the issues and looked at whether the fund itself met those requirements. So that's that, those are the AUP reports that we do. We also do year-end tax filings, but the tax filings, like I said, you have to certify at the end of the year, at the end of the first year to be a qualified opportunity fund. And it seems pretty simple, but we've seen a number of folks get that wrong. And we've been the recipient of folks that got that wrong and then came to us. And we actually were able to submit private letter rulings on their behalf and uh, get that approved, get that forgiven, I guess. The IRS has been very generous. I think it's the first years of a program. And if, if you have a footfall, like forgetting to self-certify or maybe self-certifying in the wrong month, like we talked about earlier, the IRS has been very generous in forgiving taxpayers. But you do have to, you do have that request and it's not cheap. There's a charge for that. So it's good to have the accountant on the front end that does it right the first time. Yes. So it's always good to have it done right the first time. That's quite natural. If you get it wrong, some things can be cured after the fact. Many things cannot. So please reach out as soon as you're aware that you're going to invest in or form an opportunity fund, or if you identify an issue. So John, that's very helpful information. We obviously can't fit everything about opportunity zones into one podcast, but I do want to let our listeners know that we do offer a range of resources on our website, including on-demand opportunity zones trainings, and I'll include a link to those resources in today's show notes. I would also like to encourage listeners that if you're considering getting involved in opportunity zones, or you already are, if you're not a member of the Opportunity Zones Working Group, please consider joining. You can email John about that as well. It's a great way to stay abreast of new developments within Opportunity Zones. It's also a great way to help influence recommendations that we make to the IRS and for our comment letters to members of Congress, as well as to learn about issues you weren't aware of that we do discuss on the calls and you probably should be aware of. And we always have a working session where we discuss issues that clients are presenting to us and share with you our thoughts and then they also go out to a discussion within the group. Now, I did mention email. You're probably thinking, well, how do I get his email address? So, John, if you could take a moment here to share your email address with our listeners. My email is John Shreddy. That's J-O-H-N dot S-C-I-A-R-E-T-I at Novaco, N-O-V-O-C-O dot com. And if you didn't get John's email address on the podcast here, I will include it also in today's show notes. So John, thank you for joining me for the podcast. I could speak with you for another hour about the topic, but we don't have time for that. But please do stay on the line for our off mic section, where I'm going to give you the opportunity to share some of your wisdom with our listeners in non-tax related areas, or at least not directly tax related. So for our listeners, please be sure to tune into next week's podcast. My guest is going to be my partner, Blair Kinser. He'll be on the tax credit. He'll be on Tax Credit Tuesday to discuss operating expense trends for long-commencing tax credit properties and how knowing about these trends can help property owners and managers better prepare for the years ahead. Blair's going to share what we've learned from 2020 and how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected operating expenses. If you're a long-commencing tax credit property owner, manager, investor, you won't want to miss next week's episode. You can be sure you're notified of that episode and each week's episode by following or subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast. Go to www.novaco.com slash podcast to subscribe to and to stream the show on our website. You can also follow or subscribe to Tax Credit Tuesday on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Radio Public. Now, I'm pleased to reach our off-mic section where listeners get some non-tax related advice and words of wisdom from our podcast guests. 
So John, I'm going to start with one of my favorite questions to ask the podcast guests. What's your favorite productivity tip? I'd have to say, Mike, the best advice I ever got, and it took me a while to listen to this advice, is that there's no such thing as multitasking. <laughs> I like that. As a busy father and a busy partner in an accounting firm, you think you can do more than one thing at the same time. And um, I found over the years that, that if you focus on one thing, you're a lot more productive. Now, that's a great tip. Very good tip. Doing things one and then two and then three is a lot more efficient than trying to do all three at the same time. So building off of that, what's the most important leadership lesson you've learned? Most important leadership lesson. How about talk less and listen more? <laughs> a wise person once said, Mike, that God gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason. <laughs> so when I, when I remember this, I always gain valuable insight and information from the folks I'm around. So made me a better leader. I definitely like that. And when you mentioned that, uh, that you should talk less and listen more, the two ears and one mouth is exactly what came to my mind because you definitely can never listen too much. So I totally agree with that. So I thank you for sharing that. And then lastly, what advice would you give to someone looking to develop a new professional skill? I think the main thing I tell folks is make sure you assess all available resources. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing. I think we probably appreciate this more than the younger folks is that when we grew up, when we were starting in the professional world, we didn't have Google. And <laughs> it was, we found ourselves at a library or coming through journals, hoping we stumbled across answers that we were looking for. And, and so it, there's so much information out there at your fingertips now. It's just, just assess the available resources is a, is a great uh, word of advice. And then find a mentor. Seek out someone you admire and ask them to be your mentor. And I think most folks would agree to do that in some reasonable time that they would give you. But I think folks like like to mentor others in general. And so find a mentor that you admire, someone that you would like to be more like in your professional career. And then make sure you monitor your progress, Mike. I think most of us, and I make that mistake myself, is that if we be attentive to our progress and, and learn from our mistakes, because we all make them, and also learn from our wins so we can do more of those sorts of things. I think those three things would be the three things that um, my advice to someone trying to develop a professional skill. So maybe summarize those three again. Access available resources, find a mentor, and monitor your progress. I really like all three of those. I mean, monitoring progress, every goal that you think about should be measurable. You always want it to be measurable. And then you also want to have some sort of time measurement to it, some sort of time aspect in terms of setting goals to yourself and being able to measure yourself against some timeline. So I definitely appreciate those three tips. So thank you, John, for joining me on the podcast. As always, you've been a great guest and I appreciate you making time for the podcast recording today. Thank you. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novograd and Company, LLP. Archived podcasts are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast. Novogratik and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. 
Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.